0: And then we come now to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of First Peter, and the third chapter of the book of First Peter, and the third chapter, and I'll be reading, preaching this morning on verses 18 through 22, that's First Peter <laughs> chapter 3 verses 18 through 22, as we continue with God's help in our series through this book of 1 Peter. I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud. Here beginning in verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. And God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers Mm -hmm. having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time in your word today. We would ask for the work of your Holy Spirit, that he would be our help and our guide and our teacher and lead us into all truth. And so we ask for his help today as we hear what is spoken. We ask him, the Spirit, to help us apply these truths to our own lives so the way that our thinking and our conduct. Our thoughts and our affections are transformed for the glory of God. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. This morning we want to return to our consideration of Christ, not only as the one who suffered, but as the one who was gloriously victorious. Gloriously victorious. For as we saw several weeks ago, Christ's sufferings were not meaningless, nor were they for his sake alone. But they were the necessary path that Christ took in obedience to God to win something greater for himself and for his own people. For Christ's sufferings were, first of all, virtuous in nature. Virtuous in nature, meaning that through the Christ set forth what true virtue is and what true virtue does. For never was love, never was compassion, never was selflessness, never was goodness and kindness displayed more fully and more vividly than when Christ suffered. In fact, the more we learn, the more we know about Christ's work on the cross, the more we come to truly appreciate the beauty of the gospel, which is not merely the good news that Jesus died and was buried and rose again in accordance with the scripture, because those are merely the historical facts of the gospel, but that Christ in dying for us, Reveal to us the character of God and his grace towards sins. For in the sufferings of Christ, we see that the perfections of God were on display, and in a way that not only revealed who God is, but how short we all fall of his glory in terms of our own virtue. For due to our sin, you and I are not virtuous, you and I are wicked, but God extends to us his virtue, his kindness, his mercy, his grace to what Christ did so that we might recognize our need for him, that we might realize how wonderful he is, and that we might flee to him who has the power to forgive our sins and to make us virtuous also the inward work and power of the Holy Spirit. Saint Christ's sufferings on the cross were vicarious in nature. Not just virtuous, but vicarious in nature, meaning that Christ's sufferings were not for anything that he himself did in disobedience or through careless neglect, but rather Christ died for us In our place, the righteous giving his life for the unrighteous, the just in the place of the unjust, so that he, in a way that no one else possibly could, might bring us to God and give us access to him. For in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, in the message of the glorious gospel of God, is the answer to how you and I can be made right with God. And that is through faith in the one who took our place, the one who bore our punishment, the one who vicariously bore in his own human body what you and I deserved to suffer. Now as the one who's conquered death, which was once the power and the sting of sin, Jesus Christ calls upon us to see what he has done for sinners, do we see that today? To see what he has done for sinners like you and me who are vile and helpless creatures. And he saith to us this morning, look to me and live. Look upon my sufferings and understand. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For all who come to Jesus Christ by faith will not be rejected. Turned away. Then, third, we saw that Christ's sufferings were victorious in nature, virtuous and vicarious and victorious. For though Christ suffered real and genuine humiliation for a time, his sufferings on the cross were actually the precursor to his greatest victory, for by prevailing through his sufferings, by passing through the valley of the shadow of death, in a sense that you and I will never fully understand and experience, Jesus Christ emerged truly and completely victorious. Yes, Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Not only is the one who knew no sin and who could not be held by the power of death, but he also triumphed for you. Triumphed for me as well as the ones who would believe in his glorious gospel. For the gospel is the message of victory, victory of accomplishment. The gospel is not, as some commonly misrepresented today, a mere statement of God's sincere wish that someone would receive Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not God's sincere wish. The gospel is a proclamation of victory. Victory. The victory That Jesus has already obtained upon the cross. Those who receive Christ through the gospel are assured of their participation in that which Christ has won and procured for his people. And so going back to our text today, Christ's sufferings were a splendid victory. And a victory that was made ever so evident by the fact that he was made alive in the spirit made alive in the Spirit, as it states here at the end of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For by being raised to the power of the Spirit, Christ was revealed as the ultimate victor. The ultimate victor, the one who gloriously prevailed against every form of opposition to win the ultimate victory for himself and for his own people. Indeed, in these words, made alive in the Spirit, We hear not just the proclamation that sin and death have no right to claim over Christ, but that he instead has the power to banish sin and death forever to his victory. A victory that was gloriously displayed at his resurrection, which we saw last Sunday. And yet as we read further in our text this morning, and namely as we come now to verses 19-22 through 22 of this third chapter of 1 Peter, we see that there is yet another pronouncement or declaration of his victory that Christ made himself, when according to this passage, he actually went and proclaimed it to the spirits in prison. Notice. It to the spirits in prison. And needless to say, this is a very interesting, and I might also have a very debated passage in this first letter of Peter because it raises two compelling questions. And these questions are: number one, when did Christ himself make such a proclamation of victory? And then, second, who were these imprisoned spirits that the Apostle Peter mentions here in verses 19 and 20 in particular? I want us to consider this this morning prayerfully and with God's help. And in answer to this first question, when did Christ himself make such a proclamation of victory? There have basically been two views or interpretations. I'm going to go through a number of views today, so I hope that you won't be weary in considering these, but I'm going to go through them because I think that they help bring out the fullness of these passages. First, I was suggested, and this view has been taught in some Reformed circles, that this declaration of victory that Peter was referring to here actually took place back in the days of Noah. Back in the days of Noah, which are referred to here in verse 20. Notice the expression, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And this view simply states that while Noah preached in his day of the coming victory of the Messiah, Christ was also speaking through Noah. Christ speaking through his Paul preachers. And Christ was declaring his victory through Noah, even to those who are now still in prison for the rejection of Christ's message of victory back then. For 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 (laughs) assures us that Noah was a preacher or a herald of righteousness. And the assumption is to some That his preaching, Noah's preaching, referred in some way to Christ's coming. Remember, Christ's coming was foretold even as early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and of Christ's victory. And certainly, Christ does speak through those who declare his word. In fact, I want you to think about that just briefly this morning. Is it only my voice that you hear when the word of God is preached, or does Christ also preach through me? Mm-hmm. So the idea here is that Christ is declaring his victory through the preaching of Noah, who foretold the victory of Jesus Christ. And certainly there is truth in that statement. However, the overall context here, and in, in particular the sequence of events suggested by these verses, seem to demand that in in this particular instance, Christ declared his own victory, which occurred at a later time, which brings us now to the second view. And the second view, which has been popular historically, is that Christ actually descended after his sufferings and death into the realm or the domain of the imprisoned spirits for the specific purpose of declaring his own victory over his opponents. In fact, some Christians have argued for this view from the language of the Apostles' Creed, which declares that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, Died, was buried, and then he descended into hell or the abode of the dead. But far more authoritatively or authoritative than the Apostles' Creed is the language for the testimony of God's word, which speaks of Christ's ministry following his death and burial. There are references to Christ ministry after his death and birth. Well, we read in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 7 through 9. That when he Christ ascended on high, he led a, cap- a a host of captives with him, and he gave gifts to men. That's referring to Christ's ascension. But it's so it also says here, but in vain he ascended those mean what else does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Again that's Ephesians chapter 4 verses 7 through 9. And so with respect to when this incident that Peter refers to occurred following the death of Christ, it would appear that scripture points to a time during which we might call Christ's descent. Christ's descent. And why does Christ make a declaration of his victory as a part of his descent? Well, if history serves us well here, such a declaration of this nature was not only customary in ancient times of battle and conflict, but it was expected that those who had achieved a great victory in battle would appear before those who had been defeated in the battle and display the spoils taken in victory. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, seems to have this kind of victory display, if we can call it that, or this kind of victory celebration in mind, when he writes that after Christ accomplished his work on the cross, he disarmed... The rulers and authorities, that refers to the spiritual powers that opposed him, and he put them to shame by triumphing over them. And triumphing over one's enemies, putting them to shame, was one of the glorious spoils or benefits of a decisive and glorious victory over one's enemies. The Apostle Paul's words that I just quoted from Colossians chapter 2 teach us that following his victory on the cross, Christ declared his great victory in the presence of his defeated foes at the exact time that was appointed. And of course, the case can be made here, I believe, that Peter is providing the least in part an actual description of such a declaration. Such a display by Jesus Christ over his own defeated foes here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. And yet, what about these spirits in prison who are mentioned here at the end of verse 19? Who are they? Who are they? And is there any evidence from the text here as to the identity of these imprisoned spirits? Well, there have been three views as to who these imprisoned spirits are. Let me mention them very briefly. The first view that has been suggested by Thumb is that these spirits are Old Testament saints who were awaiting the finished work of the Messiah, who were awaiting the finished work and deliverance that he would provide for them. However, The most obvious problem with that view is that these spirits are not presented in these verses as saints. These spirits are not presented in these verses as heirs of God's promise, but as what? As prisoners. As prisoners. They are imprisoned in the lower regions of the earth. And this would imply that they are being kept or held there against their wills and awaiting their final judgment. Then a second view that's been suggested to identify who these spirits that Peter refers to are is that these spirits were unsaved individuals, human spirits, who lived during Noah's day and who Never heard, or truly understand the truth of the gospel, and that our Lord's appearance before them here in this incident was to proclaim the gospel so that they might have a second opportunity to believe. In fact, maybe you've heard this some over the years. This idea of a second opportunity. However, clearly this view was wrong because it assumes several things that are simply not correct or scriptural. First, it assumes that unstate persons who lived in Noah's day and who heard righteous Noah preaching never received enough information to obey or to be saved by faith. It also assumes that another opportunity would need to be granted to them now that Christ has been. Victorious, and yet Peter's description of these spirits here speaks against the idea that they merited a second chance, or that they were given a later opportunity to repent, or even that God provides. One. In fact, Hebrews chapter nine and verse twenty-seven states, "It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that comes the judgment." Not the new or second opportunity. So the idea of second chances after death to believe or to repent is not taught in Scripture. It's not what's being taught or suggested here. Rather, I would suggest to you that Christ went, Christ descended into the lower regions of the earth to make this declaration, this declaration of his Decisive and glorious victory to those who were his defeated foes. And I commend this interpretation to you for for several reasons. Three real quick reasons. The immediate context. The words used. And other testimonies in scripture. So just bear with me. Think this through. It's important that we reach a conclusion here and then try to apply it. First, as I just mentioned, the overall context does not support such a view that this was a second opportunity, for example. Because the context is not Christ's evangelistic work of drawing men to himself, but the context is his work of announcing his triumph and victory. His work of announcing his triumph and victory, and in the context of those who opposed him. Second, as I noted earlier, Peter identifies those whom Jesus declares his glorious victory to here in verse 19 and 20 as spirits imprisoned. Imprisoned spirits. And this language not only teaches that these spirits are being held in chains for judgment, but it also suggests that they are not the souls of unsaved men at all, but rather they are. Demonic beings. In fact, listen to these comments provided by the ESP Study Bible. I want to use a resource this morning that you can easily obtain and use yourself in your own study to verify what I'm saying this morning. The ESP Study Bible states here regarding verse 19. It said, almost without exception in the New Testament, the word spirits in the plural refers to supernatural beings rather than to people. I think that's significant. We're not talking about the souls of unsaved men, we're talking about supernatural beings. Then the ESV study Bible editors list several places in the scripture where this is the case. I'm not going to go into that in detail because of time, but I simply want you to know it's backed up the L editors' belief by, by scripture. Further, the word prison is not used anywhere in scripture as a place of punishment after death for human beings, while it is used as a final place for Satan. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7, and other fallen angels. Then the editors of these comments in the ESP study Bible cite two verses where this kind of language is used in reference to fallen angels or demonic powers. Let me read both of them to you. I think that these help support the interpretation I just recommended to you. The first verse is, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. I'm not going to turn there and I'm going to read it exactly, but I'm going to refer to it. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, where Peter speaks of the fact that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains. Notice the familiar language of the similar language. He Committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept or to be held until the judgment. Then the second passage offered up by the ESP study Bible is Jude verse 6, which reads, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, in other words, they rebelled, are kept in eternal chains, Under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Again, Jude uses language that is very similar to Peter's description in our text today. For here in Jude, you have fallen, disobedient angels, demonic spirits, just as Peter is described. Who are being kept in chains. Which is another way of describing those who are prisoners. And they are awaiting God's final judgment. Therefore, brethren, based on all this evidence that I'm appealing to you. I'm going through it very quickly. I know that. And i am probably even stumbling over some of my words. And I apologize for that. In light of this. I would suggest that Peter is presenting us. In our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 in particular, with Christ's victory proclamation over the demon, demonic forces that are now with him. You'll remember that demonic forces attempted to hinder his ministry all through others. But now we have Christ proclaiming his victory over these very same demonic forces. For when Christ descended into the lower part of the earth, he did as Paul stated elsewhere in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. He proclaimed his triumph over them. He proclaimed that the forces of hell had not been able to stop him from his mission. To redeem and to claim all of his people. And that he secured victory for his people also. He proclaimed that their judgment. Upon them as his foes. Was certain and forthcoming. These things be true. and I would suggest to you that they are. But as a picture. Our glorious. Victorious. Redeemer on this triumphant of For only a short time earlier, forces of hell had unleashed their fury, rejoicing loudly in his agony and in his sufferings, and yet now Jesus Christ, having been made alive by the Spirit, is standing before them in victory. In victory, for He is the Victor. He is the conquering King and the High Priest. He is the one who brings His enemies to their knees, and now they are His footstool. Isn't that what we read about this morning? All hail power of Jesus, power of His name. Oh, dear friend, let us learn from this text today. Jesus is is the Victor. Let us kneel down to Him. Let us not find ourselves warring against Him. Let us see what happens to those who fight against God's anointed. In fact, I have to say this before I proceed. I want to apologize to you and to Brother Bo this morning for the call to worship, which he read today, was rightly. Psalm 2, but I had failed to change the identification of the text, and he announced it was reading Psalm 30, verses 1 through 5. He followed directions perfectly. Thank you. But I failed to change that on the document that I gave He read Psalm 2, and as we heard from Psalm 2 this morning, it says to us, Do not resist God's anointed. It says, let us kiss the Son, lest he be angry and be perished in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who actively take their refuge in him. Psalm 2 tells us the fate, the outcome of those who oppose God's anointed. It also shares with us the blessing of those who take the refuge in Jesus Christ. I ask you this morning: Are you taking refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you hiding from the wrath to come in Him? But you ask this morning: How do I do so? How do I do so? How do I make sure that I do not experience the wrath of God? that's spoken of and pointed to in these passages. Well, note how Peter addresses this question in verse 20 through 22. I think this is really interesting how Peter makes application. For Peter Peter urges us to to take a lesson from Noah. A lesson from Noah. For Noah lived in a day of pending judgment. In fact, it's interesting what Peter says about the days that Noah lived in. He says that Noah lived in a time when God's patience waited. Notice that. That's what it says in verse 20. In a time when God's patience waited. And Noah was given the grace by God to realize that he and his family needed to flee from the wrath to come. And so when God commanded Noah to build the ark, Noah did not question, but Noah obeyed it. And he, he took his family, only eight persons total, into the ark. Just before the rains fell, just before the bowels of the earth burst to the and, and the waters of God's judgment came forth. Peter tells us here at the end of verse 20 that they were brought safely through the water. Maybe you're asking, how does all that relate? I mean, we're talking about spirits, imprisoned, we're talking about the flood now, we're talking about being delivered into of the waters. How does this relate to us and to the salvation that Christ won by His victory? It relates to us because if you and I are going to pass safely through the judgment that is to come, the judgment that is coming, then you and I need an ark, an ark of safety, not an ark made of wood and pitch, but an ark found in the person of Jesus Christ. For Christ is the only one who can bring us safely to the torrent to come. And I plead with you today: go to Jesus Christ, enter the ark of Christ, by placing your faith and trust in him, and you will be saved. And of course, the ordinance of believers' baptism is mentioned here in verse 21, and Peter goes on to write here in verse 21 also, that baptism illustrates these spiritual realities as well, or when we are baptized, when we go down into and out of the water, we show that we've been brought safely to salvation in Christ that we have been raised from death to life. In fact, Peter writes here at the beginning of verse 20, that baptism corresponds to this. He's saying, there is a relationship, there's a correlation here, There's, there's a connection here, that we need to consider. And in a symbolic sense, baptism testifies to the reality of our salvation. He says, even baptism does save us, not In a literal sense, but in a symbolic sense, it it testifies powerfully to the reality of our salvation. And not because baptism removes our sin or our guilt, but because baptism, Peter states here at the end of verse 21, is an appeal. Some translations say it is a pledge, or it is a promise of a good conscience before God. Which is made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is again a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is associated not just with symbolically displaying the fact that we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, but also it is the means through which God gives us a clear conscience. The ability to walk before our God without our conscience. Constantly condemning us. I would suggest to you this morning that it's very difficult to enjoy a good conscience as a believer if we know that we should be baptized, but we've been disobedient thus far to God's command. Because baptism not only testifies to whose power we now walk under, but To who is the Lord over our conscience? And it's Jesus Christ who is to be the Lord over our conscience. Why does Peter put all this focus at the end of our text on issues of baptism and the good conscience? I'll tell you why. Because these are the spoils of victory. Christ won the battle. He took the spoils from his opponents. And those spoils are unlike any other spoils of battle. They are spoils that Jesus Christ gives to his people. They are spiritual ordinances. They are spiritual work upon the life and upon the conscience. And we should receive the spoils, the benefits of Christ's conquest. And victory. Great Especially given where Christ is now. Especially given where he is now. And where is he? Notice verse 22. The last verse of our text. He has gone into heaven. And is at the right hand of God. With angels, authorities, powers. Having been subjected to him. In fact picture the scene if you would. He's not only victorious, he's not only appeared before his defeated foes in the lower regions of the earth, proclaiming his victory over them, showing them that all their efforts to try to hinder his public ministry were in vain, that he rose from the dead and would rise from the dead victorious. But now he has descended. Now. He is in heaven at the right hand of the the Father. What a scene. Mm -hmm. What a scene. And if Christ is where Peter states that he is, and we have every reason to believe, based on the authority of God's word, that he is there, how can we not fully be subject to him? How can we not fully submit to him? For he who sits at the right hand of God has all authority in heaven, is that what Christ did? I have all authority in heaven and on earth. He who has been worshipped and the obedience of all the angels and all the authorities and all the powers has the right to demand ours also. Think about that. There's a heavenly scene being drawn before us. All of heaven is submitting to him. They're, they're bowing down to him. All the angels, all the authorities, all the powers... What makes us think that we're the exception? We're not the exception. We are to be subject to Him as well. And we would be foolish to try to deny Jesus Christ what is His by crown rights. He wears the crown, He's the King, King, Lord of Lords. He has a right to demand these things. He has a right to expect them. That we would give them freely gratefully. We'd be foolish. We'd be like those who are condemned in Psalm 2. We're fighting against the Lord's anointed. If we fail to do these things. and Psalm 2 includes... The psalmist says to his reader, in short, these words. Don't fight against the king. He says, kiss the son. Kiss the son. Notice the contrast between fighting and warring and a railing against the king, kissing the son. Kissing the son is a sign of genuine fear and affection for one who is in power or authority, or one that we have affectionate feelings for. Kiss the son. Embrace the sun. Don't war against the son. Let us love him as we should let us appreciate all that we've learned this morning about this victory, and let us crown him with me. God and Father, we thank you this morning for your mercy and grace. We thank you for this opportunity to consider the teaching of your word. Father, I pray that we've heard today would convict us of our own failure to give Christ what is due to him, and would encourage us through the promise of his victory to do those things that he commands of us for his own will. Lord, we pray especially for those who May be present today or outside of Jesus Christ who up to this point in time have been fighting and warring against God's anointed. May you help them by your grace and in the day of your power to throw down their arms. To bow the knee to Jesus Christ. The victor. The ultimate victory. And may we who are your people rejoice in Christ's victory for us, Lord. We share in that victory, and we ask, O oh God, that the sound of the gospel this morning would have a very pleasant ring or tone to it as we reflect upon Christ, is victorious Lord. Bless us as your people. Unite us behind the banner of Jesus Christ, our great commander and warrior king. Bless us in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.